Sorry, I don't love you. A friend I've grown accustomed to. Cause with you, if something isn't wrong, something isn't wrong, something isn't right. I wish you could be happy. Hey everyone, and welcome to Geek Dumb is Back. We are again sponsored by Loot Crate, and you can save ten percent on any new subscription at trylootcrate.com slash geekdumpod. And then once you go to that link, you can enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings, and that'll be linked in the show notes and everything. So you don't have to memorize that link. It'll just be there for you. And we're really stoked to have them sponsoring the podcast. Today, I have on MJ. He is returning, and we are talking about V for Vendetta. We're going to cover both the comic and the movie. But before we dive in, how are you doing today, MJ? I'm pretty good. I'm glad I'm glad to be back on. Especially with this uh, this topic, I feel like it's really relevant given the uh, times that we're in. Yeah, and I more recently read the comic because it had been sitting on my shelf for a while, and I was like, "All right, this is a comic that I really need to get to because I saw the movie. I want to say quite a while ago before I even knew it was actually based off of a comic, and I remember." liking the idea of the movie and unfortunately i didn't have time to rewatch that before we recorded but when i was going through the comic book i was just like oh yeah okay i remember all of this and this sort of thing happening and i feel like the comic book might have been a little grittier though than the movie would you agree with that oh yeah um especially in v yeah now in like in the movie like v's a little bit more altru- altruistic, I feel. Like, uh, he's more, you know, for the greater good. And then, you know, he has limits. In a comic, he, he doesn't have limits. Like, if you're in his way, he kills you. Like, even though it, it's... In the comic, there's this, you know, totalitarian government versus anarchy and stuff like that. He has no qualms about... He's just all about the mission in the comic. He, Like, if you're in his way, by any means, he, he'll just go through you. Yeah, definitely. And there's even some, you know, differences with Evie, which is what he ends up calling the girl he finds. And I feel like that is a little different just because in the comic, it definitely felt, I guess, just like, not necessarily that he was forcing her to stay there, but she seemed to be a little more reluctant in the comic book than in the movie, if I'm remembering correctly. No, no, you're right. Um, well, in the movie, it's weird because Natalie Portman playing her, you seem like she's a little bit more strong. Yeah. Like, like they're like in the comic, Evie is totally unsure of herself even before she meets V. Yeah, she's like a total mess too. <laughs> yeah, I think in the comic, she she's a prostitute. Like, she's like a sixteen year old prostitute or something like that. So. I mean, I know Alan Moore hates he hates his adaptations going to the movies. Uh, I mean, I can't blame him because From Hell I thought was terrible. The League, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was a little better, but looking at both, I don't, I don't feel that it was too much off. Like you said, like the comic was a little grittier, and then some of the motifs may have been a little bit different because. Uh, the comic really spelled out like anarchy. Right. Um, but yeah, I think it was for the most part, a little bit dead on, 
But like I said, like like you said, like the the, the characters are a little bit skewed a little bit. But. Yeah, and obviously V for Vendetta has sort of come to mean something not only as a comic book or a film, but when we see groups like Anonymous and that sort of thing, and they're using these similar masks or the exact masks that we see V wearing, it's sort of become something so much bigger than I think Alan Moore probably ever expected it to be. Yeah, it's kind of, you see, it's grown as a phenomenon, like, especially, like like you said, with Anonymous and everybody wearing the Guy Fawkes mask as, as form as you know, the rally against oppression and, and to kind of be the resistance a little bit um, with the comic. And a, a thing that I kind of noticed, uh, v, v is a very, by any message, you know, by any necessary means guy. You know what I mean? So he thinks that he has the moral high ground, even though he may destroy things, he may kill people and whatnot. And that sense of, I mean, I hope nobody takes that literally like today and try to tries to do that. But uh, that sense of, you know, trying to overcome oppression and trying to overcome, you know, this some fascist government and whatnot. It's extremely relevant now, uh, given the current political times that we're in. It, it's weird because I find a lot of uh, Alan Moore's novels like really really relevant yeah uh especially this one i before you asked me to do the podcast i actually watched the movie a week ago and i was like wow um <laughs> and it's i'm like why are we living in this now you know what i mean like it's england here but you know yeah yeah and i know when i was reading through the comic i think i sent you a picture of one of the you know frames there and it was him saying, you know, something about make England great again. And the irony is definitely not lost on that statement no. with, you know, Trump and his make America great again. And, you know, Alan Moore was actually pretty pleased to see so many people wearing the Guy Fox masks. And, you know, he did an interview a while ago with Entertainment Weekly, I just found this quickly on the Wikipedia page for the comic, and it has a quote from him. I was also quite hardened the other day when watching the news to see that were, there were demonstrations outside the Scientology headquarters over here, and that they suddenly flashed to a clip showing all of these demonstrators wearing V for Vendetta Guy Fox masks. That pleased me. That gave me a warm little glow. So even if he didn't know that this was going to be as big as it was, he's sort of still embracing it. I know movie adaptations and TV adaptations can be a different story, but just culturally what this one mask means to so many people around the world, too, not even just in England, but here and, you know, all of these places that Anonymous has sort of paid attention to over the years while wearing these masks. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like there's a little V inside of all of us. Um, you got to you got to think like V, especially. Well, he was made by the by the oppressors that, that he's going against. Um, he you had the Norfire group who, who's, you know, the villains who, who are the police state. And V was originally an experiment and he comes back and, and, and the, the iron. 
the irony there is that you know the experiment comes back to you know to be like the grim reaper and uh, and to bring them down to justice and i think especially where we're in a world where things are happening so fast it, it seems like news is bombarding us like a mile a minute now where we can't really catch a breath and it just seems like so many rights that we work for are like being taken away rapidly so you're looking for like we're kind of eevee in that in that point where like some of us just kind of feel you feel scared because you don't really know what's going on you know what i mean and then everybody's kind of always looking for a v and so like it's awesome that he took both of these characters and kind of there's you know the courageous side of us and then there's there always you know the timid side of us that has to go through trials to be courageous yeah and i sort of just want to break this up here and talk about the comic right now for a bit because of the differences that we've already mentioned sort of broadly talking about it but this comic came out in 1988 the first issue came out in september and it ran 10 issues through may 1989 so the fact that this was written so long ago and still has you know sort of some relevance today is pretty fantastic for alan moore to have created something that can last that long and you know it was published here in the states it was published in the uk france and brazil which brazil seems a little odd almost but in a way it makes sense because of just the amount of turmoil brazil has been through as well and you know aside from alan moore you have david lloyd as the main artist and tony weir as well and David Lloyd also handles some of the coloring for the book. And, you know, I think Alan Moore and David Lloyd sort of created this little world that worked so well for both of their styles. And I think that's sort of something that makes the comics still stand out today. While it wouldn't be the first comic I would probably recommend to someone, it's probably up there on the list and I simply wouldn't recommend it as the first comic someone reads just because of you know how heavy it gets and the content in it and obviously if it's you know kids you don't want them reading this as their first comic or anything no, or give no, them the no, flash no. or something like that <laughs> but when did you first read the comic and did that happen before or after the movie it was definitely after the movie okay so we're in the same boat yeah, because I had read that although the movie was overall faithful to the comic, there were some differences. So I had, I had, you know, went to a local library and stuff like that, and and they had it, and then I read it. The thing about Alan Moore and, and what he does is that his language is so universal and so rich that you fully immerse into the storyline that he's talking about, and. With this particular comic, like you mentioned, like the artwork is so grim and it's so dark. Right. But with with comics and and we review comics and whatnot, the art some in order to have a successful comic, like the tone and the words have to go hand in hand, and you really do feel the dreariness and and when this is set and what the characters are growing through and. I don't know, like, like you said, I wouldn't recommend this to, you know, 
my little brother and stuff like that who, you know, is looking at V killing everybody and whatnot. But as you see now, you know, 1984, George Orwell, there's an uptick of everybody who's reading it. And I would kind of suggest anybody who's looking at that book to look at this story. Right. And I think, too, you know, I've said before that the art doesn't necessarily make or break a comic for me. But when it goes hand in hand with the writing, it's something that sort of just puts the comic a step above others for me. And, you know, this art isn't something that is extremely pretty to look at. You know, it's not Greg Capullo's Batman or, you know, art by Jim Lee or anything like that, which, you know, there they have like these big, bold figures and the colorists just have the art pop. This is more of a grim sort of thing. You know, you aren't going to find bright colors in this comic book or anything like that. And I think the way that this was drawn sort of goes hand in hand with that kind of coloring and with the writing and everything. So I just think really overall how this book was put together and for the time that it was put together, it really made a lot of sense to go that route with it. Yeah. If you look at the majority of the frames, it's devoid of color. Um, there's maybe like instances of like, like orange here, or like uh, there's a frame where like there's a there's a pig and a when Evie small and, and that's pink and whatnot, but it's usually black and white. You know what I mean? Like you don't want like these colors that pop if you have a really uh, dystopian story like that. And I think why Alan Moore is one of my favorite graphic novelist is that he understands uh how even tone tone and wording have to go together so like and when i'm reading it i feel like i'm there like i feel the despair in the characters and whatnot like that i feel evie's uneasiness as she meets this guy who's a total anarchist yeah and is there any part of the comic that you would say really sort of embodies the story as a whole or anything that really stands out as your favorite part or is it more of the whole thing that really makes it a great story for you my favorite part and i mean spoiler alert well i I would assume that a lot of people seen the movie but my favorite part is that e evie takes up the mantle for v Right. Like she becomes V and I thought that was pretty cool because of everything that she went through, especially, you know, being kidnapped and and, and starved and and whatnot. I thought that that like, even though V died, she was able to take up the mantle that that that's pretty dope. That was that stood out to me. Yeah. And I think the part for me was actually not too long before that moment where she takes over and it's when, you know, V basically tells her that she can leave if she wants to and that sort of thing. And you can see just the look on her face, even in the comic, you know, there's this sense that she's so unsure about herself that she wouldn't know what to do if she was just out there on her own. And, you know, her being so young plays a big part in that. And I think, you know, that moment right there is sort of what leads up to her taking the mantle. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I uh, the the 
the comic is weird in a way that um, it plays around with a lot of, like I said, like anarchy type themes because e because V's uh, motive in the comic is to create this world where you can do as you please because in his words uh, they live in the land of take what you want so I mean for him to give her that choice and for her to stay and whatnot it, it's kind of almost intertwined in that you know what I mean? Because everything, because he wants everything to be about choice. I think just with the comic in general, they did a very good job of sort of giving Evie things to do and sort of build up her confidence. But at the same time, she was still, you know, unsure in the back of her mind. And I think, you know, V being the kind of character that he is and the personality that he has, it was just really interesting to see that relationship play out how about finch the detective he takes lsd to try to get in the mind and try to be v almost yeah and i think you know the few supporting characters that they do have definitely play a big role in the story too because it's like you know without them what would v exactly be fighting for yeah, like Adam Susan, who's who's the leader, almost like Hitler. But I don't know. Like right now, I think that we need to. I'm not gonna say it. I don't think. I think that we need to. I don't know. It's weird. It's awesome that you can kind of take things from you know V from Vendetta, and you could kind of apply it and kind of think about it, um, especially with government and how much control they have and you know what would be best for the people and whatnot but you always have but there's always conflicts of how to go about that and i think we're going to talk about the movie in a little bit but um there's a there's definitely a contrast which is why i would recommend everybody who's seen the movie to read the book because like i said v's mindset and both are completely different. V is almost V is almost an anti-hero, or a, a you can actually kind of consider another antagonist in the book because of his methods. He just wants to get it done. It doesn't matter no how many people perish or whatnot. There is like a goal that is good, but you know what I mean, like. Yeah, definitely. And for V to sort of not really have any relationships that are important to him, to go and pick out Evie and sort of take her in, it's an interesting move on his part because he largely, like you said, doesn't care what happens to other people as long as he accomplishes his goal. But then, you know, he seems to have this sort of soft spot for Evie, even though he can be harsh towards her. Yeah, he's really harsh towards her. <laughs> I, like, I found myself questioning both in the book and the movie. Like, if you really care about somebody like this, why would you go to the lengths to break them? You know? Yeah, well, we'll take a quick break here for our sponsor and then we'll move on and 
talk about the film. Today's show is brought to you by LootCrate.com. You can save 10% on any new subscription at TryLootCrate.com slash GeekdomPod. And the promo code for that is BRIDGE10 to get that 10% savings. So, you know, Loot Crate is offering this opportunity and they are a monthly subscription box service for anyone who doesn't know. And it sort of goes hand in hand with Welcome to Geekdom because they have, you know, these epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. You can get apparel, collectibles and one of a kind items. You get about six to eight items in each box and it's less than $20 a month. So you have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific time to order a box and get that month's box to you. And I just want to say thank you to Loot Crate for supporting this podcast. And if you guys support Loot Crate, you are supporting this podcast too, even if you are already doing so by listening to this right now. So again, that is trylootcrate.com slash geekdumpod. I'll link to that in the show notes. And bridge10 is the code for the 10% savings. Back to the conversation now with MJ, and we're going to dive into the film here. So MJ, first, I want to talk about the casting choices for this movie, because I think that is definitely something that is interesting for different reasons. Um, So it was directed by the Wachowski brothers. So Hugo Weaving as V, I thought was a perfect choice because they were already familiar with him being right. Agent Smith in the, in the Matrix trilogy and whatnot. V, you never see his face. He's always under a mask. And I think that Hugo Weaving's voice is enough to be, you know, commanding in a role where it would just be voiceover. Yeah. So, like, yeah, even though it may have not been, it probably was a stunt double who, who did it. But Hugo Weaving, you know, his voice, if you if you heard him do Agent Smith, if you heard him do Megatron and Transformers, he has a very commanding presence even though he may not be the physical actor so i thought that was perfect yeah and he definitely really embodied what v stood for and everything and i think in part his performance of v is sort of what made the character and the book and film in general just shoot up in popularity because you know i don't think anonymous really caught on with the guy fox masks until after the film came out and even though the film still came out a while ago, you know, it was still a good chunk of time between the comic and the film. So I think the film sort of just gave this another push in popularity. What'd you think about uh, Natalie Portman as Evie? You know, I thought that was a more interesting choice just because, you know, one, they had her shave her head for this too if I'm remembering correctly, I believe on the cover, yeah, her yeah. head shaved. And, you know, in the comic book, Evie is this, you know, little blonde 16-year-old girl. So f just on looking at Natalie Portman as Evie, it definitely looked a lot different because to me, Natalie Portman had sort of this more soldier look to her than this sort of confused little girl look. And I think that sort of is one of those things that really changed how that character felt between the comic and the movie. Mm -hmm. What did you think about her? I liked it. I mean, the accent kind of threw me off a little bit at parts. Okay. Cause I knew she was trying, I knew she was trying to do the whole British accent. Right. Sometimes it was a hit or miss, but I think 
you felt, especially like we said, it's different to be <laughs> to be like the physical actor and then the actor actress and then the actor that you're conveying with is mostly voiceover. But I think she did a good job. I think especially where the scene where she's tortured. Yeah. And then she finds out that like it was V all along who, you know, who did this. I thought she was really, really convincing in that. Right. So, I mean, I think where you have a movie where there, there's more sort of love at the end. And I think she had every right to hate V, especially, you know, when she finds out. But there's more admiration to him because there's the mystery. And then he's doing what he's doing in the movie is more honorable. I thought that she was a pretty good pick. I, she would just, she was just coming off, I think, uh, you know, Star Wars Episode Two at this point. I think I think that's where the director met her first. Yeah, because this came out in two thousand five, and Natalie Portman was about twenty three, I believe, when this came out. So it lines up fairly well with that second Star Wars trilogy, and I think this, you know, it was definitely something that she was able to shine in. I think and. Obviously, Star Wars being as big as it is, that sort of may have overshadowed her performance in this, especially with them coming out, you know, so close together and everything. But I think this sort of, aside from the accent anyway, gave a different view on just what Natalie Portman could accomplish as an actress, because obviously this is a completely different role than playing Padme in Star Wars. Yeah. There was also uh, John Hurt as Adam Sutler. Now, it's weird. It's great because he played Winston Smith in 1984. So he was the person He was the person who was the victim. And now he's the, the chancellor of the Norse Fire Club in this movie. So I thought it was an interesting little tidbit. And then Peter Creedy, Tim Pickett Smith. I hated Creedy. <laughs> I thought Creedy was just an asshole. So when V kills him at the end, I'm like, yes. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but I think that the evil people in the movie did their job, especially because Creedy is really the evil behind the evil because, right. he, you know, he kills Sudler. Um, I thought that they played their roles very well as the antagonist. Yeah. And I think they did a great job with the cast in general. And, you know, it was interesting that they picked Natalie Portman simply because she didn't have the accent like a lot of these actors and actresses do already. So that was sort of something they had to, I wouldn't say necessarily write into the script because obviously this takes place in England already and that's sort of already there. But it's just another aspect of the acting that they had to focus on. And like you said, sometimes it was hit or miss. So I think, you know, Natalie Portman was a good choice, but also an interesting one at the same time. Yeah, because most of the cast was was basically British based. Yeah. So is there anything in particular from the movie other than, you know, Natalie Portman having a shaved head as Evie that sort of stood out as a big difference from the comic book uh well the time frame uh the movie i believe is in 2028 okay around there yeah i think we mentioned uh 
that in the movie that he's a uh, V's more of a freedom fighter. V is more of a romanticized figure. You know, the do-gooder, the the almost the dark knight-ish type character instead of the, you know, bloodthirsty uh, person that he is in the comic. Finch, yeah, and oh, Finch. Finch in the movie comes to, like, sympathize with V. Uh, in the comic, he, he was at, he did... Like I said, he he did LSD and tried everything to stop him. So I mean, like the the book, the book, like you said, is a little bit darker, a little bit more, I guess, real world worldy. Because I, you know, I felt in the movie that while it was gritty, it was more like a happily ever after at the end. You know, with you know V laying in the flowers and then then blowing up the like. Oh, great. You know what I mean? Like, that's cool. But in the book, it didn't really end that way. So, but it's an adaptation. And, you know, like I said, the Wachowski brothers were coming off. I felt it was interesting. They were coming off the Matrix where Neo is the sacrificial lamb. And the same thing happens to V in this movie. Like, Neo dies and then, you know, offers himself to the machines and stuff like that. And then V you know, dies and, you know, he blows up. The pen. It, it, I don't know. I, maybe it was just a weird coincidence, but yeah. Right. And, you know, even with this being a rated R movie, it didn't seem quite as brutal as the comic did to an extent, simply because I think, you know, also back in the 80s, you could probably get away with a lot more in comics than you can now. And, you know, this comic was first on DC Comics and then it moved over to Vertigo which is sort of the more mature imprint for DC Comics and you know that's with good reason because the way this story is it's just one of those things that it had to be a rated R movie and if it wasn't I don't think you know it would have gotten the point across quite as well and I think that's why we're sort of seeing now these movies like Deadpool and Logan are getting that rated R mark on them because you can't really tell these stories the way you want them the way you want to without that and I think this is definitely one of those stories that sort of follows suit with that so really you know this was probably one of the first rated R comic book movies if you think about it yeah um what was damn what was Blade because I could have I Hold on, let me look it up real fast. I feel like Blade was also rated R. Yeah, yeah, it was. And that was in 98. So really, that is probably the first one. But I think, too, a lot of people might not have realized at first that things like Blade and V for Vendetta were comic books first and that sort of thing. So it's definitely interesting to see how much they're sort of trying to push the comics and the movies, because these are more, you know, comic book characters that we have with Captain America and that sort of thing. But when you have characters like Blade or V, it sort of just doesn't feel like what people think of as comic books, I guess you can say. Well, yeah, I mean, V, the character, is just kind of like, 
like take Superman. Superman is fighting always usually fighting like a supervillain who has like some crazy power <laughs> like you know kryptonite or something like that. V although he's an experiment, he is almost like an everyday hero. Um and governments which, you know, uh regulate things, spy on you, uh try to get their tentacles in every facet of liberty and, and freedom. V openly goes against that. And he's a beacon of hope for people who want to combat that type of fascism. So I feel that this story, 1984, you know, it kind of ends where, you know, it's not a happily ever after ending. Like, but Everybody kind of, like, especially now, everybody aspire, aspires to try to be V. You know what I mean? Like, everybody tries to get involved or protest or, you know, that was the purpose of V and the movie giving everybody, you know, Guy Fawkes masks for them to, from them to protest. Right. Uh, you know, you can translate that and kind of be V in your own way. Well, without blowing, you know... A clock tower up or something like that. Yeah, don't without wrecking that. havoc. <laughs> yeah, don't don't wreak havoc that way. I mean, wreak havoc by going to a town hall or voting or something like that. But this story will always be relevant as far as you, as long as you have you know people in power who choose to abuse that power. And I think that is the beauty of Alan Moore's stories. I mean, Watchmen to a little bit. Watchmen, you know, to a lesser extent, um, like you mentioned comic book movies, that's also a rated R because I don't feel that um, most Alan Moore stories, you can't you can't do PG-13. It just wouldn't do it justice. Except for maybe, you know, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, which is a Superman story. And that's sort of one of the more you know, laid back Alan Moore stories, I would say, yeah, by far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but especially now, I just have, like, this urge to watch V for Vendetta because, you know, you we use art to try to escape for stuff. And especially with, you know, everything going on right now, you kind of look for hope in instances of things. And that's what Alan Moore kind of did. He, he gave, and Wachowski Brothers tried to do in a more modern setting, is to try to give you hope in the face of tyranny. And that's why I love the story. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you mentioned Watchmen, which is sort of going to be making a comeback in the comics now, too, with the current run that DC is doing with their Rebirth titles and everything. So it will be interesting to see how, you know, much how much of Alan Moore's stuff sort of starts to resurface especially like you said with the way things are going today and i'm definitely looking forward to what comes of that watchman information in the comics and i think you know the first one might be coming next week i want to say yeah i'm hoping but you know it's the the batman and flash crossover so i definitely suggest checking out Alan Moore stories in general, you know, we've mentioned V for Vendetta this entire podcast. We've mentioned Watchmen and even his 
whatever happened to the man of tomorrow story if you want something to sort of ease you into alan moore's writing i think that would be the story i would recommend and then you can sort of build your way up with watchmen and v for vendetta and you oh, know. The killing joke yeah the, the, the killing joke and swamp thing yeah and mj you mentioned from hell earlier i borrowed the comic from my friend and it's currently just sitting on my shelf because it is so ginormous and beastly that i'm like okay when am i going to have time to get through this because it's sort of like i want to call it the infinite jest of comics almost it's about 500 pages it's more than 500 pages which is why i the movie isn't really that great but um I kind of cut it a little bit of slack because how do you condense that into a a two-hour movie? Watchmen, the movie, um, Zack Snyder, I know there's a lot of people who love him or hate him. Watchmen is basically a visual retelling of the comic, frame by frame. Yeah, You could literally like open up the book and just go frame by frame and it's played out. It's a beautiful movie. It's just three hours plus. So uh, I would say read it, but yeah, and you could probably read it in a shorter amount of time <laughs> time than watching the movie. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, MJ, for coming on. I know you will definitely be back on. I'm sure at some point we will be doing, you know, Gotham follow up, depending on how many seasons that goes and everything. That's the hard thing with, you know, covering TV shows, because if they're still on, it's like, okay, when is this going to be over? Is it going to be over anytime soon? And how do we plan this? Yeah, with Gotham, it was a, uh, it was some. We had a almost a month and a half long break. It comes back on twenty fourth, I think. So yeah, it, soon. It's, yeah. Awesome. Well, again, thank you, and to our listeners, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for having me on. Uh, adios, amigos. <laughs>